Good morning, church. How we doing today? We doing all right? Go Pacers. No, that's not my name. It's just how I feel right now. My name is Matt, and I'm so grateful that you have joined us this week. If you're a guest with us here today, I hope that you have felt welcome coming into our home. Uh, you are welcome each and every week here. If you're joining us online today, welcome to you. Uh, and a special love to my friends at Fra- uh, Fra- Franklin and Banta, not Franta. That's not a thing. Uh, but a special friend to our, our wow, it's going to get better, I promise. A special welcome to you at Banta and you at Franklin watching live right now. Uh, I'm excited to join you guys for the end of our series called The Problem with God. If you're just joining us, my hope is you'll catch the podcasts that have happened before this. Uh, Our senior pastor, Danny's taking a break. He's coming back next week uh, with an awesome series called Encounters uh, about radical encounters with Jesus And so I hope that you'll come back for that as well. But I just want to recap a little bit. And since we're on week five, I wanted to write them down so I got them right. Uh, But in this series, we've been talking about the major uh, critiques or questions that maybe friends that are atheists or agnostic or just plain critical of our faith, uh, that those kind of uh, questions that exist in our culture. So like in in week one, we talked about the idea of exclusivity. How dare we as Christians say that Jesus is the only way to get to the Father or to get to heaven. And we worked through how we can have confidence in that. We talked about the idea of God's existence. How do we have evidence and confidence that our God exists? We talked about evil and suffering in week three and how those uh, can coexist with a uh, all-powerful and loving God. And then last week we talked about science. Is science at war with our faith or do they meld and mesh together perfectly? And I was excited about that talk because it gave me new confidence and a new set of eyes to look at the world. And, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we're a little too authentic from the stage. So uh, Danny leads the way in this and oftentimes he'll say something that's like super true or something and it comes out a little, a little weird. And so we have to tell him like, dude, that was really good, but like, don't say that next service. Like, it's a little too much information about yourself. Um, but that's just kind of how we are from the stage. And I got, listen, I got to be honest with you in the same kind of way. Like I should have fought Danny to give the science talk last week instead of the talk this week. Cause I, I'm a super nerd. Okay. Like I love that stuff. Um, you know, when we learned about Edwin Hubble, for example, right, we learned that Edwin Hubble discovered that the distance at which two galaxies continue to separate themselves basically tells us if we go all the way back that all of it was in one place to start with in which those of us of faith believe that God flicked our universe into existence. That was just so exciting for me and I love space and all that kind of stuff. I actually spent a year in engineering school, which was about all it took for make, to make me realize I wasn't gonna be an engineer when I grew up. Uh, in fact, uh, I just switched completely and just learned how to talk real good. And so, uh, and even in my spare time, even in my spare time, uh, I like to play a video game every once in a while where I, I fly around in a spaceship in a real world version of the Milky Way galaxy. And I know you're about to just drive by and go, whatever, nerd, but um, I actually have a picture of my spaceship. Uh, so this is my actual spaceship in my video game. And you're not as impressed as I thought you would be. Uh, there it is. One person who probably knows what that is and about six, seven, eight thousand people this weekend. So making me feel great. Love it. Um, but you know, I'm, uh, I even had this awesome quote by the author of the Reformation, Martin Luther, like in my back pocket, ready for the science talk. Um, and here's what it looks like. Martin Luther said that God writes the gospel, not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds 
and stars. But we're not talking about science this week. And in fact, this quote's actually a good way to start because this week we're going to talk about the Bible alone. We're going to talk about the Bible alone. So if you're following around in, uh, in your notes this week, which I hope you do regularly, we're going to talk about the problem with the Bible this week. We're going to talk about the problem with the Bible. You see, the skeptics around us, or, or maybe our agnostic friends or atheist friends, they'll, they've got this idea that the Bible is just this outdated book of some good sayings or teachings, or at worst that it's been changed and warped over time just so those who, uh, it can be used by people in power to gain more power in the world. Uh, then we really can't have confidence in the words on the page as being accurate, let alone of the actual time of Jesus. And that really it's just a, an old, dated book. And so, here's my question for you. Do you have confidence in it? Do you believe there's evidence out there that speaks to the, the validity and reality of the Bible that we hold in our hands or we have 600 different versions of on our phone? Because I want you to consider that if we do not have confidence and we can't have faith in the words on the page, the the book that we read, we have nothing. Hear me, friends. Like, if we can't have confidence in the Bible that we read, we have nothing. All we have is just some old teachings that were invented to talk about a first century wizard named Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that we can have confidence. We can have faith and the evidence that speaks to the validity of the words on the page. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. And in your notes, we're going to talk about the idea that our confidence in the Bible is based in evidence, not opinion. In evidence, not opinion. Now, when I say evidence, there's, probably, there's a couple ways you can think about that. So uh, there's one way that says, like, coming up next on the History Channel, overwhelming evidence that aliens exist and they built the pyramids. That's one flavor of evidence with a picture in the sky of a UFO that's probably just a hat thrown in, I don't know, whatever. Or there's the kind of evidence that says, on Monday for lunch, I had a Qdoba burrito. It was super great. At the bottom of my burrito, there was a giant red onion. The evidence on Tuesday morning, after brushing my teeth twice, I still tasted onion. That's the kind of evidence we're talking about. This week. Now, that actually did happen to me, and I couldn't figure out how to work it into the sermon, so you're welcome. (laughs) It was a giant onion. It was terrible. So, um, we're going to talk about evidence. Now, I need your permission before we move forward anymore. Can you get nerdy with me for a little bit? Because we're going to walk through some heavy stuff. So, I I need everybody to push their glasses up. Let's get ready to go. All right? Let's start by talking about historical evidence, the historical evidence in the Bible. Now, before I move any further into the history, I just want to say something to make everything, to make something perfectly clear. You see, we have two big sections of the Bible. We have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. Now, we could spend an entire series talking about the validity and the trust that we have and how the manuscripts of the Old Testament were copied down over time. Our Jewish friends would call that the Torah. Okay, we could spend a lot of time on that, but for this talk today, I want to focus on the New Testament, Those, uh, how it came together and whether we can have confidence in the writings from Jesus onward. So I just wanted to make sure that we're clear on that before we go forward. But when we talk about historical evidence, I'm going to rely on the same things that historians rely on 
to judge whether or not we can trust writings in the ancient world. So let's just talk about some manuscripts, for example. And I want to talk about four that are trusted as true and real in the ancient world. The first one I want to talk about is the biography of Alexander the Great. Historians agree that what we have as the biography of Alexander the Great, you can check it out from the library if you like, was written, I'm sorry, the manuscripts that we have, the farthest back we can go is 400 years after the death of Alexander the Great, and yet historians trust them as accurate. Next up, let's talk about the Iliad by Homer. Now, I read the Odyssey in high school in a Greek mythology class. That was super fun. But the, de- the documents that we have today, there are a thousand years in between the, the original writings of Homer and what we have today, and it's trusted by historians. Next up is the writings of Thucydides. Nailed it. This is one of the words of the day this week. The writings of Thucydides were about Greco-Roman culture. That gap is 1,300 years between the manuscripts we have and the, act- the, the writing of the day. It's trusted as accurate. And lastly, the poetics of Aristotle. Aristotle's poetics is a, um, a um, set of uh, writings by Aristotle, the great philosopher. They're 1,400 years between the manuscripts we trust to be true today and the original thoughts and writings of Aristotle. So these are four documents that, that we trust is real, that historians have backed up. There's pure confidence in. I'm about to blow your mind real quick. Because I want to show you the gap of time we have from the farthest documents backwards and the actions of the New Testament. The New Testament manuscripts that are available to us today go back to being written as close to 15 to 20 to 30 to 50 years from the events that occurred. This is mind-blowing in ancient antiquity. There's nothing like it. So when we hear about these, these, these writings were shaped over time or changed over time, I want to talk about the content of these writings. And I want everybody to keep in mind that, these, the, that what we rely on for our Bible today was written so closely to the events that it would have happened in the lifetime of those that were being written about. Think about that. Some of our skeptic friends say that these are just writings made up by a group of guys back 2,000 years ago just to gain power, okay? Well, if I'm here to write some crazy things about some people in some places in the ancient world, I'm probably not going to do it in the time frame in which everybody can deny it if they were there. The names of small towns, the names of people specifically, all those things would not be great if you were lying because those actual people could poke holes in it. And I want to point you to two examples in Scripture where this is just weird as it relates to documents in antiquity if we can't trust the words on the page. The first one is in uh, the book of Mark in a bunch of places, but I'm going to look in Mark chapter 15 where it's recounting the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is sentenced to die on a cross. He uh, is marching up to the uh, Golgotha, which is the place in which he'd be crucified. And it tells us in verse 21 that a passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, so it names the place he was from, was coming in from the countryside just then, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. It also tells us in Scripture that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why would I put the sons of Simon of Cyrene, so I put the place where it is, well, let, let me just tell you that If I'm reading this within 15, 25, 30 years, I can just go to Cyrene and say, hey, Rufus, heard your dad was involved in some crazy business. What do you got to say about that? And it would be very easy if that was a lie for these guys to have denied that. 
You got me? We following along so far? Another one, Paul, one of my favorite people in the New Testament, um, after a radical encounter with Jesus, tells us this story in the letters to the churches. Historians have absolute certainty of seven of Paul's letters to the churches, one of which being to the church at Galatia in our book of Galatians. In chapter two, he says he goes to Jerusalem and he meets some people. He meets James, Peter, and John in chapter two, verse nine, who were known as pillars of the church. Now, if I'm going to write a story about a first century wizard named Jesus, am I going to write that I went and met his brother? Because if anybody would know whether or not Jesus existed and, who he, and whether he was who he said he was, you'd think it'd be his brother. Am I right? So we have that evidence. And then I also want to point you to something that historian, the historians look to to determine whether or not a document can be trusted as being from the time in which it is ascribed to be written. It's this fun word called verisimilitude. That's another bonus word for you today. You're welcome. You have gained the price of admission right here. Verisimilitude is what historians use to be able to say if something actually happened based on what everything else they know about the culture of the day. Let me give you an example. If in 19, uh, I could come to you and say in 1992, the Canadians dropped an atomic bomb on Detroit. Now, how many of you were alive in 1992? Raise your hand. Some of you weren't. That's okay. I forgive you. We would be able to very easily say that didn't happen because I was alive and I was here. That would not meet the standard of verisimilitude. But in every case, both by places and names of people, the actions of the New Testament cannot be, uh, uh, they meet the standard here because nothing is shown in the culture of the day or the places and names of the day that would allow anybody with a historical background to poke a hole in what happens in the New Testament. This is the standard that historians use about the content accuracy of the words. And remember, this is 15 to 20 years, the manuscripts that we actually have after the time. And in fact, the former director of the British Museum had this to say about that interval of time and how crazy it is. He says, in no other case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the time of the earliest extant manuscripts so short as that of the New Testament. In no other case of ancient antiquity do we have a set of documents so accurately agreeing with each other on events of the day. The idea of the manuscripts matters where we get our New Testament from. And with that, I want to talk about something else that historians consider, which is the number of manuscripts. Now, I have a visual example today and so I even have goggles. And uh, if you're joining us at the Greenwood campus, you're possibly in the splash zone. Um, you signed a waiver on the way in, I hope. Uh, but I want to show you a visual example of what manuscripts by numbers look like. And we're going to talk about the same four ancient documents that I've already told you historians agree are legitimate. Okay? So we're going to start with a biography of Alexander the Great. Like I said, you can pick it up in any library that you want if you're that bored. We have two living manuscripts today that agree with each other, literally two. And like I said, the latest of those is 400 years after the events. So I'm going to represent those today with a coffee bean. This is two coffee beans. Now, we'll move on. We'll talk about poetics by Aristotle. We actually have a little more than two. We have five today. The historians view them to be accurate. 
Then we move on in the uh, writings of Thucydides, still saying that right, I'm proud of myself. We have eight of those in existence today that point to it being legitimate and accurate to the way it was written. Now, the closest that we get with a document in ancient antiquity is Homer's Iliad. Now, we have 638 manuscripts that agree with each other that we can trust so that when you read Homer's Iliad in high school, we know that to be as accurate to the letter as it was written many years ago. Now, friends, I'm about to blow your mind because it gets a lot more fun when we talk about the manuscripts of the New Testament. In fact, I'm only going to talk about the Greek manuscripts. You see, our New Testament that you have today in English translations is largely translated from Greek. Now, in Greek alone, we have 5,800 manuscripts that we base our English Bible on today. And it looks a little something like this. They did not give me a spoon, but I really want to eat some. But I'm also here to tell you that it's not just the Greek manuscripts that we get our English translations from, but at 99.5% accuracy to the letter, we have 25,000 manuscripts that we base our Bible on. And it looks a little more like this. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to measure the, the New Testament writings against some other ancient documents, there just seems to be a, a, a tiny difference. And I don't know, I'm not in the microphone dropping business, well, because they're really expensive and I was told I couldn't do it. <laughs> but for lots of us right now, so... But that's not all. The historical evidence that we have in the manuscripts looks a lot like this. But there's more. Number two in your notes this week. We have unbelievable amounts of cultural evidence that speak to the validity and the power of the New Testament. Cultural evidence. In fact, it's all around us in our culture today. And you know, some of our skeptic friends and, and some of our, our folks that around us in our families or in our lives that would call themselves atheists or agnostics, they're going to agree with us. There's plenty of cultural evidence in the power of the New Testament. And they're going to point to the idea that people with this book in their hand march with the KKK in the streets of our nation. They use it to inspire hatred or wars I've seen this book in the hands of people used solely for political power. It's been used to subjugate women, whole races of people, and other kinds of hate. And you know, if we're honest, the easy answer to those assertions is yes. It's true. It's true that those with this book in their hand have, have done those things. But I'm here to tell you that that is not indicative of the whole. That is not representative of the whole over the course of our culture, over the course of Western history, about the explosive nature of what's in this book. And in fact, a, 
sociologist and historian named Rodney Stark, who was not a Christ follower until doing the research. And if you Google Rodney, let me just tell you, he says some controversial stuff. I don't agree with all of it. But in his research with his colleagues, he studied, he studied the history of Western cultures. And what he found was, is that any place there was an exponential growth of the gospel, the culture thrived. He found, that the, gradu- he found the gradual improvement of the treatment of women, the value of children, what health care looks like, what looking out for one another looks like. In fact, he found that in two occasions in Western, in Western societies, the explosion of the gospel led to the destruction of slavery, first in Europe and after that in the United States. And in fact, if you, I'm just going to pull out one half of one verse in the New Testament, and I want us to consider whether or not this has had more impact in the hands of those that follow Jesus than almost anything else. And it comes from Mark chapter 12. Simply this idea to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know that the single largest organization in the world from a charity perspective is our friends in the Catholic Church? The single largest supporter of disaster relief in the United States of America outside of the federal government is our friends in the Southern Baptist Convention. The evidence is everywhere in our culture. That in the hands of those that believe the words on the page, it's incredible that we cannot deny the cultural evidence. In fact, I want to I read to you something from Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Here's what Dallas says. He says, along with two thieves, Jesus was executed by the authorities about 2,000 years ago. Yet today... From countless paintings and statues and buildings, from literature and history, from personality and institution, from profanity, popular song, and entertainment media, from confession and controversy, from legend and ritual, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world as he himself predicted. He so graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol on earth. He would then go on to quote Yaroslav Pelikan, and I want to show you his words to close out this point. He says, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Have you ever considered that? How much of our culture today, the way that we view healthcare and the treatment of women and children, what relationships are supposed to look like? How much, how, much of, how much would be left if we pulled everything away that spoke to the words on the pages of our New Testament? Now, my guess to you is just not that much. It's not just historical and it's not just cultural. We're going to take a right turn here because I want to talk about the evidence of transformation. The evidence of transformation. Now, this is a built-in amen moment. So whether you're joining us at Banta or Franklin, at Greenwood or online, I'm going to say some words, and then I'm going to ask you if you believe the words to be true to say a simple word. It's two syllables. It's called amen. So I'm going to say blah, blah, blah. Amen? Okay, I'm pretty sure I heard Banta on that one. Here it is. The Bible changes 
lives. The Bible changes lives. I want to tell you a little bit about St. Augustine. Told you we were going to be nerdy today. We're going way back in history to the fourth century. The man who would become St. Augustine was just a guy of the day in his 20s, living the pagan lifestyle of whatever flavor of philosophy was going on of the day. As the story goes, he felt approached by what he says is a, almost a, a young voice saying these words, pick up and read. And he translated that as to, to pick up and read the scriptures, to pick up and read the Bible. I want to show you one of the first things that he looked at as he began his search into the scriptures. And it comes from the book of Romans. Here's some of the first words that he read. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be, say it with me, transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. The best way to understand God's will is to read it for yourself and put it to the test. He did that. He would later become St. Augustine. Much of what we know about how to understand the Trinity, the way in which God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit work together, comes from St. Augustine. He was a pillar of the early church. Thousands of people came to Christ because of his radical transformation after reading the scriptures. And maybe that's a historical example and it's boring for you and you don't really care about that very much. How about this? Did you know that there are judges inside of our justice system today that know that the Bible works? In fact, there are judges that will allow biblical counseling in the life of an offender to justify a sentence after an offender has committed some crime. You see, our justice system and those judges, they don't care about what you think. They don't care about what you feel, and they certainly don't care about what you believe from a faith perspective. They care about one thing, behavior. And here's what they know, is that people that are willing to engage in biblical counseling, their behavior changes. And more often than not, they do not come back to commit those same offenses again, because the Bible works. And maybe that's a little too distant for you. Maybe none of you have ever been through certified biblical counseling before. But I can tell you that the Bible has changed the way that I see everything in this world. I've told parts of my story on stage before, and I've pointed to a verse a couple of different times, and I want to go back to it, and I want to show you something different this time around that speaks to this transformative idea. You see, I've always been intrigued by Paul, a guy who could be no farther away from what Christ looks like than to become radically transformed after an encounter with Jesus. And here are the words of Paul. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is from a guy who was stoned and shipwrecked and almost dead a whole bunch of times, saying, guys, don't worry. This is how you deal with it. Now, for on the surface, it might seem like some good advice, right? Just um, take all the worries that you got and just pour them off onto, uh, you know, the first century rainbow wizard named Jesus, and everything will be okay. But I want to show you that this part is a supernatural promise. This is not good advice. And I can tell you, friends, put to the test 
This promise has been kept in my own life. You see, the evidence of transformation is in me. It's in those that have walked away from the justice system and led incredibly productive lives. It's in the mind and the heart and the writings of an fourth century Catholic saint. But it's in you too. The evidence of transformation and the power of the scripture is it's in you. It's in the person that's sitting next to you. It's even in the person that you were bold enough to invite into an environment like this, hoping that they can just see some of the confidence that we have in this thing that we call faith and in the words on the page. And for those of us who've trusted Christ already in our lives, we've talked about this series is important for us to build that confidence, but it is not to put ammo into our pockets so that we can just take it to all the critics in our life and just shoot, 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 <laughs> coffee beans, 5,800 manuscripts. It's never what this series has been about. It's not what this content is about. And I want to show you the words of Howard Hendricks, because I think for those of us that have already trusted Christ, these are important words to hear. Here's what he says. He says, the Bible was written not to satisfy your curiosity, but to help you conform to Christ's image not to make you a smarter sinner, hear me, but to make you like the Savior. Not to fill your head with a collection of biblical facts, but to transform your life. Those that surround us in this world that are skeptical or maybe agnostic or maybe atheist, they don't need a bunch of facts from us. They need us to live a life of confidence. They need us to live a life that actually looks like we've read the words and we believe them to be true. The most powerful thing that you can do as a believer in Jesus is to take this book, put it into your heart, and then put it down and live as though you believe those words. I was talking to somebody this weekend that started out as an agnostic and started out as an atheist, always doubting. And we talked about the idea that what drew them to this understanding to dig it on their own was what the life of another believer looked like. That's what this series has been about, is to give us confidence, to give you the information that you need, to have educated and gentle and loving conversations about why you believe what you believe and why it's continuing to transform your life. And yet, I know, I know whether you're here today, you're listening online, I know that some of us, this talk is just one step in a journey, a journey that you've been on to try to understand and to relieve the doubt and try to find some confidence that you can put your trust in. That's about something that's more than words on a page, but actually trusting in this savior named Jesus. And if that's you today, if this is the last step in your journey to that door and you're waiting to knock, to trust Jesus, to have that door open to a relationship with him, I'm here to tell you that he promises us if we knock, he's gonna open that door. He will let you in. 
He will help you and guide you along a life that looks like trusting Him with everything you got. And that abundant, amazing life that He talked about while He was here on earth is for you right now. If you're in that place, don't wait one more moment. I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And as I do, I ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes. And if my words are useful for you, take them, make them your own and reach out to Jesus in faith today. Would you pray with me? And if you're there, I just ask you to say something like this. Say, say Jesus, thank you for the clarity that I can now have to trust you. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you died in my place. I believe that you took my sins upon you. You died an earthly death. And three days later, you rose again, conquering everything that I have that I can doubt you. So Jesus, in this moment, I place my trust, my confidence, my faith in you. My faith is small, so I just ask that you forgive me for my sins. Forgive me for the hurt that I have caused you and those in my life around me. Walk with me on this journey as I take my first steps with you. Show me what it looks like to live a life fully trusting in you. Jesus, it is in your name that I pray these things. Amen. You know, if you took a step of faith today where maybe those steps were doubt before, I can't be more excited and the people around us, I cannot be more excited than right now. So let's celebrate with those that have made that decision today. It is the best decision that you will ever make. If you accepted Christ and you're joining us online today, I just wanna say it's super easy to let us know that you did that. And so I hope that you'll take that step. If you're at Banta or Franklin or at Greenwood, I want you to know that we'd love to put a Bible in your hands right now on this day. Those of us online gotta wait a few days, we wanna mail it to you. But we wanna put a Bible in your hands and I can't be more excited about that than more like a day like today where we talked about the confidence that we can have and there's no better way to take your first steps than to see what Jesus says about you, to see what he says about living an abundant and full life. So I ask that if you're joining us at a physical campus, you'll see us in the back of your auditorium. Our starting point team would love to put one of these in your hand and start a conversation with you about how we can partner with you in those first steps. And now listen, I know there may be some of us here today that you're not quite ready. You're not quite ready to take that leap of faith into a life with Jesus. And I want you to know that is okay. You are welcome in this place any day because we want, you to, we want to, you to consider digging into those things, those questions that you have. But we have an environment that's designed just for you. It's a short-term conversational small group environment called Starting Point. And if you're in a place where you're still wrestling with that stuff, talk to our folks at the Starting Point tables on your way out as well. 
because we'd love to put you in an environment where at your own pace, you can discover the things that you're struggling with that will keep you from placing your faith in Jesus. Right now, church, I just wanna hear you. If anything in this series has been an encouragement, has lifted you up, has given you confidence in your faith, I wanna hear if that's been beneficial for you. Has it? I can't think of a better way to close out this series than just to have a moment of reflection, to have a moment of reflection for the confidence that we can have in our faith, but in particular, in the confidence of the words that are on the pages 2,000 years later that we can trust. And so we're gonna sing, our, our, our worship teams at our campuses are gonna lead us in a song called Say the Word. And it's totally okay if you don't know the words. This is a moment of reflection for all of us. You can stay seated if you'd like, but let's just take a moment thanking God for the word that he's given us. And then our campus teams will be up to finish this out.